0: I am approaching a subject today that I think uh, is needful for us all to consider, to have some thought and consideration of. I think we all realize that this world and this nation and the church are all in a very deep and serious crisis. It's becoming more and more obvious that the whole world economy and the stability of cultures is quickly going away worldwide and in this nation. uh, We're beginning to have sit-ins and and, uh, gatherings and various things which could so very easily turn violent and we are seeing our culture, our society coming apart at the seams There are many, many issues involved, and we'll not go there, but just to rehearse that, which we're all very familiar with. And we're also very familiar with the fact that the church has broken up. Very few, it seems, understand why, or if they understand that we have been spewed out of God's mouth for apathy, they blame someone else other than themselves, Now, we have made it a policy here not to blame anyone but ourselves. I am culpable. I have my part, however small it is and was, in where we came to be in the church. And we all have to accept personal responsibility because that is the only thing you can do anything about. But with the crisis in the church... We have people wandering about. They don't, many of them, know how to react. There was a calling of many. Now few are being chosen. And we also have the dynamic of the seed sown among thorns and on bad ground and, and that analogy to go with it or that parable. And it seems few were sowed in good ground that have taken root and become well established and are sticking with The truth. So we had a large portion of the ministry go off into Protestant uh, evangelism. We have had sectors of the church going into Judaism with the conservative Sephardic Jewish side, thinking the Jews might have the answer. And as people cast about trying to find a rudder, a North Star, some kind of right guidance, and they do it, in many cases, very sincerely, just not knowing what to do, and confusion has led them to a lot of places. Some are turning to Messianic Judaism, which is really just another flavor of Protestantism. Uh, As Christ told the Pharisees, or the Jews of His day, in vain do you worship Me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Denying the true Word of God, even though accepting Christ's name and His Father's name, perhaps. But denying the truth of God. So, even though the Messianics crossed that bridge and accepted Christ, they still have Protestant doctrine and are just another flavor of Protestantism. So we have the church milling about and not knowing quite what to do, most of it. And then you have those who came out from worldwide, who have simply continued exactly what they were doing there, and having watered it down somewhat, all the major splinter groups are simply pursuing, for the most part, what they had done before that got us spewed out to begin with, and are not finding answers. Now, I'm going to boil this down or narrow it down to the ministry, because the ministry is also in crisis and has been in trouble with God and man, both. I want to explore that a bit today and see if we can understand where we need to be and what the ministry needs to be doing today, because it seems that. There is a great deal of resentment, and that resentment is not just among men. That resentment comes from God, too, over the overall condition of the ministry, not only in the world, but in the church of God. What is the source? What is it that is bad? On the one hand, you'll say, you'll have people say, well, you should be just speaking in love and gentleness and patience. Someone else says yell, somebody else says do this, somebody else says do that, and it's hard to please anybody much of the time. And coupled with the things, the indictments God has against the ministry, there is that natural tendency in all of us not to want to be told what we don't want to hear in the first place. So, we're dealing with a lot of facets of a, dif- of a very difficult situation. Now, I am charged with a responsibility before God, and I want to fulfill it to the very, very best I possibly can through much prayer and through much consideration and meditation, along with a great deal of immersion in the Word of God, so that we might get it right now, let's start out with what the accusations really are. And I'll turn, first of all, to Ezekiel 34. Most people in the church have a dirty thumbprint there. They've turned there so often. I, I speak that partly in jest, but it's oh so true. The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel... Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Eternal God to the shepherds Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flocks. Now, I don't think it is any secret today to understand that the administration and worldwide Church of God came to the point that most everything was about numbers of people and money and power, or overlording the people. Those three things, I think, are at the crux of the problem. They became self-satisfied, I say they, I mean we, because I was part of it at one time, and I hope I'm repenting of that and changing that. But it was all about numbers of people, power, and money. And the ministers, this was especially true at headquarters, it was all about money. And, you know, you couldn't go through the holy day without counting the money and sending a a tally in to Pasadena. It just was so important to them to get that money coming and know how much they were getting so they could figure out what to do with it. And on and on and on the stories go. And the ministers out in the field also became little gods in their own eyes, and lorded it over the people in ways that in some cases are incomprehensible, unimaginable, but happened. We all have those war stories, and now we're a quarter century beyond that, <coughs> and hopefully we've put some of those things to rest and moved on, and yet we're still in crisis in the church. It's still falling apart. And God even says there in Zechariah 11, He's going to cut off three major ministries. It talks about large trees in the first verse. And then it goes on and talks about three shepherds cut off in one month. So that's downstream somewhat in the book of Zechariah, but still is to happen. And who those three major ones are, I don't know. We shall see. But count the number of major ones there are around and go from there. Doing the same things that were done that caused problems <coughs> does not solve anything. Hey, there's a glass of water here today. Anyway, he goes on and says, You eat the fat and you clothe you with the wool, verse 3. You kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. So, it was a matter of really destroying people from within and taking care of themselves. <coughs> third tithe got to be used more for the ministers in Pasadena than it did for the widow and the orphan and the stranger and so on. Yes, it's designated for the Levite as well, but they took the lion's share of it, and that was wrong. So it became numbers and money and power instead of taking care of the diseased. Neither have you healed that which was sick, neither have bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away, nor have you sought that which was lost. But with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. And people were ordered around in many respects. I won't go into all of that. They were scattered. There's no shepherd. And Herbert Armstrong, that we look to, died, as Micah 4 says, and we have no leader, no king, no No leadership in the right way, but even he got caught up in this numbers and money game and the power that was involved in his office. And God scattered the sheep right after he died, and two unclean birds named Tkach took the church and set it on its base of evangelism in Babylon, as Zechariah 5 clearly points out. So the church is in deep trouble. They wandered about, didn't know what to do, and that's exactly where we are. And he says he'll deliver his flock from their mouth. We can go to Jeremiah 23, a companion scripture of this one. Uh, We've been here, we've studied these. I don't want to belabor the point, but I want to show that God himself is upset with the way I and we have been. Woe to the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. He scattered my flock, you drove them away, and he is going to gather them, take care of them in the right way. So the ministry is culpable. We could go to Malachi 1 and 2 and see that there again they were the ministry was too lazy to take care of the things of God, but took care of themselves. So that is a culture that needs to be changed. But where do we go? We can go to. I, I did this, I took myself two sheets of paper, and I said, I'm going to write the admonitions and the complaints about the ministry on one, and I'm going to write and how the ministry should be and what they should do, and then I'm going to write the nice things about the ministry on the other one. Which one do you think is the fullest? Sorry about that. We're trying to change some things. Now, we can go to Titus, we can go to Timothy, and we can read the qualifications of an elder that they were to ordain in the various churches. And it shows men who were to be temperate in all things and to be uh, Christian in every way. I won't take the time to go through that for the sake of today, but those qualifications are very, very important. And any time we consider ordaining anyone, those lists need to be carefully thought about and the individuals involved, prayed about, fasted about, before laying hands on anyone. It says lay hands suddenly on no one and don't ordain any newcomers or novices. They need to be... (coughs) tried and true, and know that they will handle the sheep properly and handle their responsibilities properly. But we find that in spite of that, abuses occurred. Now, in this situation, what are you to do? Now, that's the part I want to examine today. Because it's easy to criticize, if I speak up and speak loud, then I'm beating the sheep. If I am too mild, then I'm not feeding the sheep. Where do you go? So, I want to see what God says under these conditions. What does He expect? Now, He has the loudest complaints of all. We address them briefly there in Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, and Malachi. There are others. Where do we go from here? Sometimes you may think I yell too much at you. It isn't pleasant. It isn't always comfortable, is it? Sometimes it steps on our toes, and we don't like our toes stepped on. That hurts. We're still here, and we must realize on some level we need it, or we wouldn't. But is that the right approach? Should I change my whole approach then, let's say, and come at it a different way than I have been in the past, and even, well, always, here? Now, I want you to understand that I was out of the ministry for about 13 years, and I had no ambitions of coming back into it. I was very happy, thank you, hunting moose and bears and building houses and doing various things in Alaska that I was doing. Uh, And it was a whole lot easier than this job, by far. It was easier to sleep at night. It was not the pressure of trying to get everything right and trying to do everything the way it should be and teach everything exactly the way God wants it taught, to get everything right and to change some things. Change is difficult. We like the status quo. So it is mind-boggling sometimes to understand some of the things that we here have come to see that really, truly are scriptural. That's what the Bible says. And if we cannot look to the Bible itself as the authority, then we have no rudder ourselves. It has to be the Word of God. It has to be that which He brought to us. And we, as Jeremiah tells us, are not to let one word drop to the ground. And it is very easy to let some of them drop. It is very easy to forget some of them. It is very easy to get in wrong attitudes or to try to make God over sometimes in our own image. To make Him like we are instead of changing us to be like He is. That is a deep pit that it is so easy to fall into because if we think a certain way, then we begin to think God must think the way we do. So we have to sift through his word continually to be sure and check ourselves against what he says as opposed to what we or others around us or the Protestant or Jewish world or whatever world we look to has to say. And many in the church have erred. And gotten away from the truth. That's another thing God talks about is the commandments. Well, what did the Kochs do? They led the church away from the commandments of God, and the commandments of God have been watered down. And more and more, we're accepting more of Protestantism in the various groups, and syncretizing the world with God's word, combining the cultures of Satan and God. And we have to get away from that. All right, what does he tell the ministry? I went through the various words that I thought of. Watchmen, watchmen, shepherds, shepherds, bishops, voice, very, a trumpet, various words that have something to say. Now, let's realize that what we are facing in the church is sometimes done... In righteousness, the resentment of the ministry came uh, honestly, if you will, because of misuse and abuse. Now, in the past, however, that was not always the case. Remember Noah? He preached righteousness as he built the ark. And he was the only one preaching righteousness, The rest of the world was sold in sin. He was ridiculed, laughed at, berated, until they closed the ark. He was hated. Now Christ upbraided the Pharisees and told them, O you, Jerusalem that stonest the prophets. So any time in history that anyone has stood up against the way things were going in society, and tried to promulgate, propagate, and push the way of God and God Himself, they have been resented, and in many cases stoned to death. Even all the apostles, except John, were killed by those around them. So it is not popular whatsoever... With the world around us, with religion, or even in the church, or even in us as individuals, to hear things that are hard for us told to us. Okay? I want you to know I understand that. But what does God say? And what would He have me do? That is all that matters. That is all that matters. Now, I get loud, I yell, I get intense, I say it like I think it is, and as the Scriptures say it, I try to stick very close to them. That becomes difficult and offensive, okay? I understand that. But let's see what God says. I just, I'm going to go down this list. Well, let's, let's start back up. Uh, Now let's go to Isaiah. Let's start back here. Isaiah 56. He's talking about the destruction which comes and is going to come. And he indicts the ministry. Isaiah 56. Let's go down to verse 10 and just pick up that part of it. His watchmen are blind, they're all ignorant, they're all dumb dogs, they cannot bark, sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs, which can never have enough, and they are shepherds that cannot understand, they all look to their own way, everyone for his gain from his quarter. Come, you, say they, I will fetch wine, and we will fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow shall be as this day and much more abundant. So here is another indictment from God about the ministry at the end time, because Isaiah is an end time prophecy. It has had its application through the ages, but its biggest application is right now. And we have a ministry pretty much through the church that is blind to what is going on. They're not unintelligent. They're just ignorant. Like dogs who don't understand and cannot bark. Now they're supposed to be doing what then? They're supposed to be aware and alert and to know what's going on and they're supposed to be barking according to this. How many of you like to hear a dog barking at night? That's about how many I figured. Especially a neighbor's dog. Yours doesn't bother you quite so much, but somebody else's will really get to you, won't it? We do not like to hear barking. And yet God himself uses this analogy and says that he has problems with those who won't bark. Okay. Then he changes it to shepherds They can't understand and how they look their own way for their own gain and so on. And hey, everything's going to be all right. Let's have ourselves a bunch of wine or strong drink or whatever. And, you know, everything's okay. Now, that's what you're hearing in many of the splinter groups from the church of God. Hey, you just listen to what I have to say. Everything will be fine. Pray and pay and stay. Everything will be alright. we got the work to do. And you work. And you send in your tithes and offerings. And uh, double them, by the way. And everything will be okay. That's the message that you're getting in the church for the most part today. And God doesn't like it. Isaiah 21. I'm going to hustle through some of these because I have quite a few and I don't want to get too bogged down with explanations in each one. Um, I didn't write down the verse I wanted to hear. The burden of the sea or burden about the people. Uh, Down about verse 6 For thus says the Eternal, said to me, Go set a watchman, let him declare what he sees. Now when I open the Bible and I see certain things that God is saying back here in these prophecies I am bound to declare what I see. I have no choice in the matter. And he saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen a chariot of asses and a chariot of camels and he hearkened diligently with much heed and he cried a lion In other words, he sees all these things and he says, boy, this is like a lion coming at us. My Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I am set in my ward whole nights. In other words, sleeplessness. And behold, here comes a chariot of men with a couple horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the graven images of her gods, he has broken to the ground. So we are at this point where we are seeing the Babylonian system around us breaking down and it's about to fall. So it has to be declared, (coughs) the danger that is coming. Satan goes about as a raging or roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And Isaiah quoted this in the analogy of a watchman as seeing a lion coming. And Satan is the one who is behind all this new world order stuff. He's the current ruler of the world. And the men that are putting this thing forth are His henchmen. They are doing His will and His purpose, whether they know it or not. Some of them know it and worship Him. Others don't know, but they're being used. Let's go to Ezekiel 3. Let's see a pattern here beginning to develop. Ezekiel 3 and down in verse 8. He's talking to Ezekiel here, and he's, he's saying that Ezekiel is to eat this roll and go speak to Israel in the first verse. And it seems sweet, but it had its problems, just like in Revelation where it says, eat this little book sweet to the mouth, but it makes your stomach sour. He says, I'm, not, I'm sending you to Israel with my words to them. For you are not, I'm in verse 5. For you are not sent to a people of a strange speech of a hard language, but to the house of Israel. So the church is first and foremost in this because it's spiritual Israel, uh, not just physical Israel. So Ezekiel's words are first to the church. Not to many people of a strange speech of a hard language whose words you can't understand. Surely, had I sent you to them, they would have hearkened to you just like Nineveh hearkened to Jonah. But you go to Israel, uh-uh, uh-uh, they won't listen. But the house of Israel will not hearken to you, for they will not hearken to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and (coughs) hard-hearted. And that is the way it is within the church. There is so much self-righteousness, so much vanity and ego, and we're the only ones that are right and everybody else is the problem and hard-headed, and are not really reading the Scriptures to find out what God Himself has to say, but they are going on with two or three verses that they think give them validity. Preach the Gospel around the world as a witness, and then shall the end come. Herbert Armstrong did not do that. He died quarter-century ago, and the end hasn't come. There are those who have taken that mantle, said, that's my job now, but the context shows that's the two witnesses' job. Because when they get done preaching to the world, the end will come three and a half days later. That's who it's talking about. But it's been misinterpreted. Now, was the gospel to be preached by the early apostles and is it to be preached? Yeah, but God does different things at different times. Now, if you find that you've been spewed out of the mouth of God and he has turned his face from you, And he says, turn to me, return to me, worship me with all your heart, repent, and get over your Laodiceanism. And you find yourself as lumps of carrots, corn, and peas on the ground with some really foul stuff mixed through it. Is that the time to preach the gospel? Is that the time that you are qualified to go out and tell the world about God? When you yourself have just been spit out of His mouth? No. That's a time to repent. That's the time to change and get over what we and I was and what you were. Because it's not just the ministry. It was the people themselves that were in apathy. God puts it at the door of the ministry because they did not bark. And let people know what God says. So he said, if you see it, say it. Son of man, verse 17, I have made you a watchman to the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. We will see this repeated over and over and over again. That in times of crisis, in times when everything is going south, when nothing pleases God, essentially, that the church is doing, God says, warn, destruction is coming. Well, destruction is come and is continuing. We have thousands of people, who, spiritually speaking, are dying of the sword, famine, and pestilence, and disease, and a a famine of the Word from coast to coast. That's what's going on. And they're wandering and milling about, scattered, having no shepherd to know where to go. And the shepherds don't have a clue. They won't bark. They won't warn. They just preach nice things and good sermons And essentially, proper doctrine, but they're not warning anybody of what's wrong with them. God does not like that at all. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him not warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man does turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you've not given him warning, he shall die in his sin. And his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered. But his blood will I require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he is warned also you have delivered your soul. So I hope I'm speaking essentially to righteous people here. And I hope that you will get as far from sin as you can, and you will be righteous, (coughs) and you will deliver yourself, and I will also be delivered because I did what I was supposed to do. Okay? You are responsible for yourself, but if you go the wrong way, God will put it at my door. So I have no choice. But to bark loud and to bark often and to warn loudly the things that I see. Okay? Otherwise, it comes down on me. Sorry, that's just the way it is. Uh, Let's go to Ezekiel 33. This is the one before he jumps all over the ministers in chapter 34. Uh, Here I want, let's begin in verse 1. God's word came to him again saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, when I bring the sword upon a land, and that's about to happen in this land, he's already brought it on the church spiritually, he's about to on the nation. And say to them, (coughs) or when I bring a sword on the land, if the people of the land take a man of their coasts and set him for their watchman." If when he sees the sword come, he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever hears the sound of the trumpet and takes not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. (coughs) He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning. His blood shall be upon him, but he that takes warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchman see the sword come and blow not the trumpet... A trumpet doesn't sound too good either when you're sleeping. It's almost like a barking dog. If you're asleep and somebody cuts loose with a trumpet, you don't like it. You don't like the phone ringing even at three in the morning. You surely wouldn't want to hear a loud trumpet piercing the airwaves. And yet, they all slumbered and slept. The whole church has been asleep. All ten of the virgins. So, when you blow the trumpet, it's at night for everybody, because they're asleep. Okay? If he doesn't blow the trumpet and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood <coughs> will I require at the watchman's hand. So you, o son of man, I have set you a watchman to the house of Israel, therefore you shall hear the word... At my mouth and warn them from me. So God gave these words to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel wrote them down so that they would be here for us today to read to his people when we are again at a crisis situation. And it goes on to show that every man will die for his own sins, but the warning is here to the ministry, to Ezekiel and to anyone who would follow him on how to approach this thing. You have to warn or you yourself are in trouble. Isaiah 62, verse 6 through 7. I have set watchmen upon your walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace, day nor night, You that make mention of the eternal, keep not silence. If you're going to talk about God, do it day and night. Don't let up. And give Him no rest till He establish, until He make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Not only am I not to give you any rest, I am not to give God any rest. Until he had fulfilled his purpose and caused Jerusalem to be a blessing in the earth. Now some think it isn't too important to discover or understand whether Jerusalem is over here or over there. It is one of the most important issues that we face today. Where is God going to set it up? Where is he going to come to rule? Where is one of the six major questions you always ask of anything? Who, what, why, where, when, and how? We need to know where. It's easy to get sidetracked. I've given everybody an opportunity to get involved and to help prove one way or the other where the true Jerusalem is. I hope we don't get so sidetracked that we forget something that's that important and get on to other things that might be important to us, but maybe not as important to God. Why are we here near Zion? Why are we sitting at the base of the Canaan Mountains? Why, why, why did God bring you and me here? I do believe. That he led me to understand these things for a purpose. And he made it very, very clear what my commission was. And I did not choose you, did I? When I left Church of the Great God, it was a calendar issue that had to be dealt with, there was no choice. And I was not going to start another group. I thought there were plenty already. I did not have in myself a need to go preach or start another group. I did not intend to. But you started calling and saying, where are you keeping the feast? Why did you leave? What's going on? And I said, where are you keeping the feast? And I said, well, I'm going up to Zion. I don't even know if my wife's going yet. I was not going to try to push or pull her one way or the other. She had to make up her own mind. I gave her that opportunity. I did not try to bulldoze her. And I said, I'm going up to Zion. Well, can I come? I suppose so, if you want to. And there is where this started, the feast in 2000. God gathered a few to Zion. And I believe He's going to gather a whole bunch more. Now, whether I lead that or not is up to God. I am only one breath away from death. And if I'm not the one to do that, He will certainly provide someone to do it because it is going to happen. That's what the Scriptures say. So, I and we, you... Are not to give God any rest until he reestablishes things. Stay after him. Stay on him. Didn't David act pretty prevailingly with God at times? The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now when God says, don't give me any rest, he means it. He wants us to do that. Don't let him Back off at all. Make Him turn His face to us. He said He will when we turn to Him with our whole hearts. Do we even know what that means? Is God, is His way, is His will, is His Word on our minds day and night? Is that what we think about, breathe, talk about with our children? through the day is God's way or the right way to do things whether we mention God specifically or not what is on our minds is it constantly in your head to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ to think as he thought and walk as he walked that should be something that never leaves our mind our consciousness is, am I doing this the way God would do it? Am I thinking this the way Christ would think it? That should govern our every reaction, our every thought. And if it doesn't, we need to do a whole lot more study and prayer and get to the point that our reactions are of the Spirit, not of the flesh. And I know we all have a long way to go there. Jeremiah 6, let's go down about verse 9. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, they shall thoroughly uh, glean the remnant of Israel as a vine. Turn back your hand as a grape-gatherer into the baskets. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot hearken. Behold, the word of the Eternal is to them a reproach. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Eternal. I am weary with holding in. I will pour it out upon the children abroad and upon the assembly of young men together. For even the husband with the wife shall be taken, the age with him that is full of days. And their houses shall be turned to others." with their fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand upon the inhabitants of the land, says the eternal. For from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Not dealing with the truth, lying, whatever. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. Now the church, the daughter the daughters of Zion, have been hurt very badly by the church, by the ministry, by conditions, by their own actions. And here is another indictment, that they say, peace, peace, when there really is no peace. And many of the groups are pray- preaching, you just stay right here, everything will be peaceful, everything will be okay, Don't, no worries. It'll just be okay. Listen to us and you'll get your ticket to the place of safety. And it gives a slight amount of comfort. But peace, peace, when there really, honestly, truly is not peace, is not what God wants preached. Now, would I rather say peaceful, nice things? Of course. But here again, God says that's not the way to go. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination, verse 15? No, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. Therefore they shall fall among them that fall. At the time that I visit them, they shall be cast down. Thus says the Eternal, stand in the way, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk therein. They don't want to go back into God's Word. And see the old ways written there. The old ways in worldwide are not the ways spoken of here. Those old ways got us in trouble. Now, the true doctrines that we did have were good. But we lost that love, that closeness, that emotion, those feelings, that passion for God. Also I set watchmen over you, saying, Hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said... We will not listen. And then he goes on to further indict. So again, he tells the ministry here not to speak peace, but to blow a trumpet of warning. Are you beginning to see a pattern? Isaiah 18. Are you beginning to see why Israel stoned the prophets? Why the Jews tried to stone Christ and stoned Paul? (coughs) they don't want to hear these things. Isaiah 18, verse 3. Uh, All you inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, see you when He lifts up an ensign on the mountains and when He blows a trumpet, listen. For so the Eternal said to me, I will take my rest and I will consider in my dwelling place like a clear heat upon herbs and like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he shall both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. That's what he says he'll do. Ezekiel uh, 17 talks about that. About how the church has been ripped apart and how he's going to plant a new tender plant from a green twig. Isaiah 58. This one we know quite well, Isaiah 58, verse 1. Now, Isaiah is one of the kindest, most loving, uh, loquacious prophets there is. He has just a way of putting things that is strengthening, that is comforting, that is helpful. God gave Isaiah a gift, and he even commented on it. So, this is coming from perhaps the most gentle of the prophets, even as John the Apostle was the most loving, gentle, and kind one of the apostles. And John wrote of love a great deal. But John was pretty strong, if you go back and read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He says, those that say they love me and don't keep my commandments are liars, and the truth isn't in them. And he calls a lot of people liars, and he really jumps into them, does it in a book that we talk about love. God's love is often tough love, because we are not what we ought to be, and to get us straightened out is what it's all about. Harken back to Noah, the different captivities of Israel, the captivity that this nation is about to go into, and the absolute destruction of the church. It is intended to shake us to the core, is what it is intended to do. So even the most gentle of the prophets says in Isaiah 58, verse 1, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, and show my people, that's his church, Their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily, and delight to know my ways, as a nation that did righteousness, and forsook not the ordinance of their God. We keep the Sabbath, we keep the feast, we do the things of God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice, they take delight in approaching to God. They like to come to Sabbath services. They like to go to the feast. They like to be considered the people of God and the church of God. And then it goes on to explain what the problems are. They're problems of the heart. But again, the theme is the same. Jeremiah 4. Verse 4, circumcise yourselves to the eternal and take away the foreskin of your heart, that which covers the heart and makes it unacceptable and keeps it away from God. (coughs) You men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. So God indicts all Israel, the people, not just the ministry here. But then He tells the ministers what to do about this circumstance that is about to cause the people to be destroyed. Declare you in Judah and publish in Jerusalem and say, blow you the trumpet in the land. Cry, gather together and say, assemble yourselves and let us go to the defensed cities. Let's go where there's protection. Set up the standard toward Zion, retire, stay not, for I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. The lion is coming up from the thicket and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. Plans are today being made to invade and destroy this country by people in other nations. They have their plans pretty well formulated by now. It is a matter of exactly when and how it is to occur. But the destroyer of the Gentiles is preparing his way, and we will fall very suddenly. So we're to cry aloud. My job at this point is not to cry to the nation. It is to cry to spiritual Israel that they might be protected from what is coming. That's my job. I will not be presumptuous and say I'm to go to the world. I am here to repent. I am here to treat you with love and kindness and gentleness and patience. But I am also here, that is on a personal level, but I am also here to speak to the limits of my vision, the limits of my capacity, and perhaps even the limits of my voice. And I'm a loud mouth. So, hey... Maybe that's why God called me partly, because I do have a big mouth. Now, if I could just say only what He wants me to say, we'd have it made. But this sermon is about that. What does God want said? And how does He want it said? Now, you say, well, you're just picking out all these nasty ones. There aren't many others. Guaranteed. Go through the Bible and find it if you can. I've got a short list over here. Maybe I'll get to it. Just like Isaiah 40 is one of them. Comfort you, comfort you, my people. Tell Jerusalem her warfare is accomplished, that blessing is coming. But then it goes on down and says the world is grass. It says, what shall I cry? The world is as grass. It's going to wither and die and be burned up. So even in the one where it says comfort you, my people... It goes around and it gives a very strong message of what is to be cried. And Isaiah 40 is the beginning of a voice crying in the wilderness. A spiritual wilderness that is in the church of what really is going on. And not many people are ready to hear it, I'll guarantee you. So even the ones that start out kind of (coughs) nice have a brittle side. Uh, Isaiah 30. Now, wouldn't it be nice if I didn't yell? I have somebody here that bugs me about it in jest. But I think it's jest. Anyway, Isaiah 30, verse 9. Uh, verse 8, now go write it before them in a table and note it in a book, that it may be for the time to come forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the eternal, which say to the seers, see not, that doesn't mean, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for, The those who go to demons that peep and mutter, but those who see, to the seers, see not, And to the prophets, prophesy not to us right things, but speak unto us smooth things. (coughs) Prophesy deceits. Get you out of the way. Turn aside out of the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. We don't want to hear the words of God. Wherefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness, and stay there on, your wall is going to fall down, breaking suddenly. So even if I try and say, well, I'll quieten down, I'll be a little smoother, a little more peaceful, I find the Scripture says, don't do that. That's what the people want to hear. Don't do that. I have no choice, brethren. I really don't. Uh, Let's see. Isaiah. I guess that's forty-one. Can't read my own writing. Uh, forty-one, verse nineteen. No, I don't think that's right either. Now, skip that one. I. I wrote it down wrong, I guess. I can't read it. Jeremiah 42. Maybe it was Jeremiah I wanted there. We got plenty anyway. What time is it? Ooh. Jeremiah 42, verse 11. Uh, Be not afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Be not afraid of him, says the eternal, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. And I will show mercies to you that he may have mercy upon you and cause you to return to your own land. But if you say, we will not dwell in this land, neither obey the voice of the eternal your God, saying, no, but we will go into the land of Egypt where we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor have hunger of bread, and there will we dwell. We're going to find some peace and safety. We don't want to hear about anything loud. We just want to do our thing and we'll be okay. And now, therefore, hear the word of the Eternal, you remnant of Judah. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel. If you set your faces to enter Egypt and to sojourn there, it will come to pass that the sword which you feared shall overtake you in the land of Egypt, and the famine, wherever you are afraid, shall follow close after you, and there you shall die. They don't want to hear the trumpet. They'll do their own thing. Uh, Ezekiel 7. I'm going to skip on through some of these, just hit the highlights. Ezekiel 7, verse 14. They have blown the trumpet, even to make all ready, but none goes to the battle. For my wrath is upon all the multitude thereof. The sword is without, the pestilence and the famine within. He that is in the field shall die with the sword, and he that is in the city, famine and pestilence shall devour him. But they that escape of them shall escape and shall be on the mountains like doves of the valleys, all of them mourning everyone for his iniquity. Uh, there was a verse I wanted there about the feeble knees. My head isn't on it, but the, the point was that it's, you blow to no avail. Hosea eight one, I won't read there. It says, "Set the trumpet to your mouth." Joel two one and fifteen says, "Blow the trumpet, make a noise, let the people hear." Uh, you're familiar with those. Amos three, I'll go to that one real quickly. Amos three verse six. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city, and the Eternal has not done it? Surely the Eternal God will do nothing, but He reveals His secret unto His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Eternal God has spoken, who can but prophesy? We read these dire prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the minor prophets, and so on, How can you not lift up your voice like a trumpet and prophesy or preach or teach about these things? Because there is a lion in the thickets who is about to attack us. Satan has already attacked the church and pretty much destroyed it at God's behest like Job. And now... The Assyrian and those with them in the coalition against America will be doing God's will and destroying Israel again. It is about to happen. 1 Corinthians 14. I want to hit some of these in the New Testament. There's more, but I'll just hit a few. Chapter 14, verse 8. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So likewise you, except you utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For you shall speak into the air. If you're going to blow the trumpet, don't give an uncertain sound. Blow it loud. Blow it hard. Blow it long. Make sure they understand what is going on. If it's an uncertain, wavering sound, it does no good. Unless you show powerful leadership, people will not know what to do or where to go. So make sure that a certain sound is given. Who's going to prepare if you don't? Jeremiah 3 says, pray not for this people, nor cry for them, speaking of our nation. It won't do any good. Now, he also, I think, is referring to the church there. He has said, 90% will not listen. Only a 10% remnant will respond. It will do no good to pray for the church, spiritual Israel, today, You're wasting your breath. You're wasting your time and your energy. That does not mean we cannot and should not pray for individuals where we know that there are difficulties and problems. But God is bringing this down on the church. There are specific prophecies of three big churches and ministries falling in one month. And He says the destruction is going to be complete. And only a 10% remnant saved out of it. Pray for the remnant. Pray for those who will be faithful. Pray that God will bring faithful people. But you're wasting your breath if you try to stop what God has put in order. Because as we've read in the prophecies, not only physical Israel, but spiritual Israel is hard-hearted, stiff-necked, rebellious, and will not listen. But you still have to cry. You still have to lift your voice like a trumpet and tell the way things really are. Otherwise, it comes back on your head, he says. Uh, Ezekiel 21.12 says, Cry and howl. I won't go back and read it. just more of the same. Howl, bark, cry, trumpet, whatever. Uh, Let's go to Matthew 11 and see one of the things that Christ himself, a point he made. John the Baptist came preaching. He was a rough man in terms of the clothes that he wore, the foods that he ate, and so on. And uh, Christ had a comment about him here when they brought John the Baptist up. Matthew 11, verse 7. And as they departed, Emmanuel began to say to the multitude concerning John, What went you out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? Did you expect a prophet of God to be a reed shaken in the wind? No. John preached repentance. John preached change from your sins. John lifted up his voice. He was not a reed shaken in the wind. He was the forerunner of Christ. He was coming to prepare the way for Christ. The ministry today should be preparing the way for Christ. And we cannot be a reed shaken in the wind. There it's almost like the one shall a trumpet give an uncertain sound. Do we have a clearer understanding now of why you see me do what I do and approach it the way that I do? I have been over these Scriptures personally many, many, many times. I have read them and absorbed them. And if I am to speak at all, I have to do it in the way, in the manner, The God says, I have to take heed to all these scriptures. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's abrasive at times. I don't like to do it. I like to laugh and joke and cut up with you and just be a brother with you. Not some great gigantic overlord with a high position where I speak in exalted tones to those beneath me. That's not what it's about, because I am, you are not beneath me and I am not above you. I am one of you. I'm your brother, your father, your grandfather, whatever. That's the family relationship that Paul kept pushing in his Gospels, to treat the young men as brothers, the young women as sisters, the older men as fathers, and so on. That's the way I am to treat you, and that's the way I am to move among you. Do I show the greatest dignity all the time? No. Do I show any? Perhaps not. (laughs) I'm me. I'm your brother. I'm trying to do right. I'm trying to do the same things I'm telling you to do. And I fall very short every day. And yet, I read these, and God tells me, I can't shut up. I can't speak quietly. I must do this. And I must do it in a certain way. I have no choice. Or your blood will be on my head. And I don't want your blood. I don't want it spilled. And I certainly don't want to be responsible for it being spilled. Well, that's the way it has to be. Now, I can go to several New Testament scriptures that show you how to treat people with love and respect and patience and so on. And I try to do that. I very, very rarely, on a personal level, yell at any of you. I very rarely correct anyone strongly. Now, I had a man who was considerably older than me when I was a young minister in Miami. And he said, You speak too loud sometimes. He says, now when you get people off in a corner and you're with them personally, you can get just as strong as you want. You can blow them through the wall. But when you speak publicly, you have to be careful lest you offend, lest you bother people. And I tried to take that to heart and it just seemed backward. I had much rather show love and mercy and compassion and pity on a personal level. And then let it all hang out in the sermon. I think you can be a lot stronger in a sermon in that sense, generally, than with an individual. Now, if ever somebody has a problem, they have a sin, they have a difficulty that they're working on, they need encouragement, they need inspiration, they need compassion, sometimes they need to be talked to pretty severely, it just depends. It says some have compassion making a difference. With others, jerk them out of the fire. And you've got to know when to do which. And it isn't always easy to determine that. But when it comes to the things we're talking about today and what the ministry is supposed to be in this day and age, when we have a crisis in the world, the nation, and the church, and all these prophecies that we have been examining today are coming to pass and destruction is upon us, then anyone who is set as a watchman cannot do anything but follow what God says. So, what do we have to do? We have to reform and change those things that God indicted the ministry for, and that was the numbers, the money, the overlord approach And pushing people around. They used to tell you what car to drive, what kind of clothes to wear, almost everything in your life. I don't do that. I don't care what kind of car you drive, it's your business. I don't care what color it is, it's your business. I try not to interfere in your personal lives unless you ask for counsel or advice on something then I'll give my two bits. My job is to preach the Word instant in season and out of season. Paul told Timothy to rebuke and exhort. Rebuke is a pretty strong word. Exhort is a pretty strong word. And it goes on and on like that. So, God lays out how we are to approach this. Love people above all, gentle, patient, long-suffering, kind, gentle, yes. But at the same time, cry aloud and spare not and tell my people their sins. God loves us all. Emmanuel loves us all. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that they might not Perish, but have eternal life. He loves us all very deeply. But if we do not respond to Him, He does Noah's flood. If we do not respond to Him, He does Israel's captivity. If we do not respond, He calls us liars and snakes and whited walls and whitened sepulchers. If we bring the wrong things into the temple of God, He runs us out with whiplashes. If we do not repent and turn to God with our whole heart, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth as we go into the lake of fire. God is love. But God wants our love. He wants our honor to go, or His honor to come to Him from us. He wants us to worship Him with all our heart, mind, body, and soul. And if we fall short of that, He will have to make a judgment. And we will either be told, enter into life, or we will be cast into the lake of fire. Now most will make it. That's a fact. Romans 11:26. 26, all Israel shall be saved. <clears throat> Speaking of the vast majority, not all individuals. God is a success. Now, he got the world's attention when they are floated off. He is about to get the world's attention again here at the end of the age. And 90% or more of the people of the earth are going to die horrible deaths. So that when they come up in the second resurrection, they will be humble, meek, teachable, and accept God's way, His rule, His way of life. Those who survive and go into the millennium as human beings will have been humbled greatly by seeing over 90% of the people on this earth die around them. And they will have gone through extreme hardship to even survive. Now, is God kind, gentle, and loving? Yes, He is. But is he harsh and hard when people refuse to do what he wants done? Yes, he is. So, we have a world, a nation, and a church that is self-willed, hard-headed, hard-hearted, self-righteous, and a ministry that has been the same way, including me. And I am working daily to repent and change and be what I'm supposed to be. And I look to these scriptures we read today to show me how to speak, what to preach and how to go about it. And therefore, I will not give an uncertain sound and I will not be a reed shaken in the wind and I will cry aloud and spare not and I will bark and I will cry and howl. That's the way it's going to be here. I will not speak peace, peace when there is no peace. And I will not try to say, let's all have a drink and everything will be just fine. Hunky-dory and we're going to the place of safety. I cannot do that. I am bound by God's Word not to do that. So if it's hard and harsh and loud and mean and nasty... Maybe not that, but that's what God tells me to do. I can be gentle, hopefully, and loving and kind to you as my brothers and sisters. And I aspire to do that, in spite of my human nature at times. But I thought it would be good to go over some of these scriptures and see not what man thinks I should say or man thinks I should be or how I should react, But what does God want in this time and place? He wants people to repent of Laodiceanism, of sin, and turn to Him with their whole hearts. And He says, stand on the wall and blow. So that's what I have to do. And I hope your blood is not shed, and I certainly hope none of it's my fault.